0: Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms, we talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative?
1: Ernest Krim III is an anti-racist educator and hate crime survivor who uses black historical narratives to empower and educate families and train educators through an equitable lens. Mr. Krim, a Southside of Chicago native and University of Illinois graduate, is a former high school history educator of 12 years, who now advocates for social justice issues and teaches black history to the world through social media with a platform that reaches over 2 million people monthly. Additionally, he is the CEO of Krim's Cultural Consulting LLC, an international speaker and author of two bestsellers, Black History Saved My Life and the AEBCs of Affirming Black Children, and a passionate progressive education activist who has been featured on CNN, ABC, WGN, PBS, CBS, NBC, and Newsweek, amongst various other outlets. Please welcome Mr. Krim III to CTN with J.D. Fuller.
0: First and foremost... It's amazing to see you. You look great. Happy great to have you. you.
2: Thank you. Likewise. Likewise. Great to
0: see you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, the other part of that is it's not easy for us all to find time yeah. to get together. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. we're all trying to do what we do to get the message out there. So yeah. Yeah. I just want to, you know, offer an, an additional appreciation for your flexibility, and your patience. I got lost in the threads. You didn't make me feel bad about it. It was real sweet. Thank you.
2: Matter of fact, <laughs> just getting on this interview made me think of other emails I need to respond to. I was like, oh, you know that
0: happens when Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's get right into it. I want to start off with the books you've written. Mm-hmm. Okay, you've written a couple of books, and I want to know, first of all, where can people find them? Yeah. And then why they were so important for you to do.
2: Yeah, you can find both of my books, Black History Saved My Life, How My Viral Hate Crime Led to an Awakening. That's my first book. My second book is the ABCs of Affirming Black Children. They can be found on ErnestCrim.com and Amazon. These books were important to me because I'm sure you can relate to this. My awakening happened in two ways, having an amazing professor and also to reading books on my own, because there's something magical about books. Like there's the intimacy of being with something sitting there at, and not like group reading in a class, but sitting there really digesting what that person's telling you or trying to communicate, underlining, highlighting, taking time to reflect at your own pace. It's like having a conversation with someone or really just listening to someone and just being able to enter the mind of someone from a completely different time period. And as I was going through college and I was inspired to learn more and want to teach black history, my first thought was I need to you know, be a teacher like my professor was because that inspired me, but also too, I need to have a book because when I read Frederick Douglass's narrative in college, my whole world changed. When I read Malcolm X's autobiography, my world changed. So my first thought was like, how could I make an impact like that? Kid you not. When I first started teaching, my goal was to write a book. Uh, I first started teaching in you know uh, 20, 2009, 2010. But I just, in my mind, I was like, I don't have anything to talk about. What can I talk about? Like, it's all been said. I, I didn't want to do a research book or a typical research book. And, you know, lo and behold, I had a life experience that so many of us have and so many of our ancestors have had. And I felt like that was the perfect vehicle to tell my story because it's, a, it's an entry point that is traumatizing, but it, it gets a lot of eyes and ears. And I wanted to let people know through that book, Black History Save My Life, that a hate crime is usually the one of the least racist things we deal with in the present day. But I want to like show people what we can do to learn about ourselves to help us persevere through these things, but also too to be aware of these systems. So that's the entry point to my story. It's in some ways like a prequel because I don't spend the whole time talking about the hate crime. I talk about everything in my life that led up to it or that taught me about racism and Black history. And then with the children's book or family book, as I say, it breaks down these concepts because. My first book is primarily being read by adults. These adults are probably parents or, you know, community members, educators. So, in their mind, and I've had people ask me this, it's like, you know, what can I do with my child? So, I'm deconstructing that. I'm reverse engineering it. So, now you have a book. The first part of my book, I talk about the impact my parents had. And I talk about elementary school and my mom giving me one of the most amazing affirmations ever. So, now I'm giving people you know, 26 affirmations. And I got a second edition of that book coming out this fall. Hope, Yeah, but well, I'm not going to say hopefully. We're going to put it out this fall.
0: No, it's so, going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's going to happen. Just put it, just claim it because I see the vision for you. You know, I love how you are combining the family, you know, with the adults and how, how you recognize the importance of interlocking the two. One of the things that makes me think of you know, I was thinking about this interview and I was like, given how impressive you turned out, are you doing anything different to raise your children? Because they have to get raised in this country. You had to get raised in this country. What are you doing or not doing differently? Oh, it's a great question. One thing I think that
2: was interesting about my upbringing was that, you know, I grew up in a red line community. Most of us would call it like a segregated community or whatever. My house was an oasis where I could go and learn about myself and just kind of see everything I needed to to see but I think having that connection, you know, to the way that the system was right there on the outside and then going to an all white school, than a majority black school. I had questions just based on my lived experience outside of my house. So that's one thing that helped mold who I am. My kids, we live in a, a, a different type of neighborhood in terms of the economic status and even in terms of the diversity. It's very diverse. So the situations my kids experience are more so like. Being a black child in a diverse area, in a diverse school, the school is black, white, Hispanic. The staff is mostly white, so like they they are noticing things that aren't cut and dry. Like when I first took my kids to <clears throat> to see my mom, their grandmother, around the time she retired from being a principal because she taught in the same community where we live in Chicago. My daughter, at the time, I think and my oldest was probably like four or five. Kid, you not. We got home. She asked me, and she said, Daddy, why are all of mommy's students black and brown like us? Because oh, like where I go to school, it's a lot of different colors. So wow. at four or five years old, I, I had a conversation with her and I know she didn't fully understand it, but I had to explain to her why that is the way she is. So what I think is different for my kids is. My mom wasn't a black history teacher. She wasn't a social science teacher. So I think she kind of dabbled with it, but she mainly did math, middle school, and she was a principal. She later became a preacher. Hers was secondary. Like she learned like while she was doing other work, you know, she was in the community with the kids, you know, taking them on field trips, mentoring them, doing programs. But my work is not just education first, but it's us center first. So my mom would have had to make time to study. Like I'm studying and I'm making a living while I'm doing this, studying and teaching people. So hopefully I'm not handicapping my kids. We'll see. <laughs> but but we're having a lot of conversations proactively, you know, like we and the people who read my children's book can attest to this. I don't dumb down, you know, when I'm talking to another audience, I'll say the word. Then I'll explain it if I need to. But I'm still going to keep it the same. So we're having conversations with my kids yesterday. We're talking to My one of my daughters said that when she was in third grade, they were talking about pioneers and settlers. And I said, well, what did they tell you about that? That we had a nice conversation about this country, you know, what what happened to indigenous people. We've had several conversations about that. We talk about colonialism, imperialism, and I can see their their eyes like, what is he saying? And I explain it. But it's like what they're getting now at this age, I feel like it's going to prepare them because my mindset is I want them to be able to go further. But I also have to realize that they won't have some of the same experiences. And that's good. But I want them to have that knowledge base. I want them to know what I know now at their age. So when I'm older, whatever they need to do in their realm, whether they choose education or not, they're going to have to commit to some form of service. And I hope yeah. I answered that question. I'm not
0: sure. <laughs> no, you got my mind. I don't know if you see all my facial expressions. But I mean, you got my mind bubbling. I'm like, yeah. Oh, but it's all going through the, yep. the system over here. You bring up you know, just a few really nuanced points that I wanna I wanna bring out. One is that an ongoing conversation I have with parents as an outsider of parenting and many years I have in doing what I do, the idea that you want your kids to go further and do more. At the same time, you are robbing them of some of the experiences you had to be the catalyst for you to do what you did, or or experiences that did not protect you that you are protecting them from. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very intricate idea to, to prepare them well while not robbing them of what we used to call resilience. But I don't like that word anymore because yep. that just means keep beating us and we bounce back. So yep. it's not the resilience that I'm talking about. It's more like substance. Yeah, yep. It's a substance. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. No, I, I think what's important, too, for any parent out there, for all of us to realize if, if pe- as people who are committed to this is, we can only speak to the life experiences we've had. Like we can read different books and things like that. And that's all important. But at the end of the day, you can only truly teach through that lens of your experience in addition to that knowledge. So like I grew up on the far South side of Chicago. I did not grow up in games though. They were there, but I did, I never got involved in that activity. I, I lived my life as an an athlete, one of the youngest in my neighborhood, the youngest in my house, and I was a, a keen observer of things. So, like, I can't speak to someone about what it's like to maybe having, you know, live that type of life and then found this. I can only speak to the experience of being the observer, being the, the kid who was all for the most part following the rules, but still caught that racism. You know, I can speak from that. And then my kids are going to have to speak from the experience of growing up in a suburban neighborhood, being in a mostly diverse school setting and already they've had experiences with colorism and, you know, things of that nature and, you know, dress code issues and stuff like that. So when they get of age, they're going to have to, whenever they make that decision, because I know they at, at least one of my kids is going to want to do something like I do. They're going to have to make sure they're speaking to that experience that they have. And I think that as parents, we have to realize too when we say we want our kids to have more than us, to me, you know, once they have their food and they have their basic necessities, we're not talking about living a, a richer life materially. We're talking about, you know, more enriching experiences. We're talking about the values we wish we had or the values we had. We're talking about passing those down and expanding that to different experiences because it, it could become a thing. And I think we see that with children of, of prominent people in our in our community, like where they lose that same desire that first generation had. But as long as we keep them grounded, you know, I've, I've taken my kids back to my neighborhood plenty of times. We've had those talks. You know, my, my wife has done the same thing. It's, it's definitely a balancing act, but we always have to make sure that they realize their success is tied to serving and giving back too.
0: Listen, that's amazing that that's even, you know, an ideology that you and your wife have bought into and, and definitely integrate ongoing into your kids' lives. The other thing that I see that you do with your kids, which I want to emphasize is you celebrate their blackness. You celebrate the color of their skin and the culture in a way that ingrains this pride. So no matter where they are, that's what they lead with from what from appearances. Would you agree with that?
2: Definitely, definitely. And it's something that, again, I knew, you know, was funny. So I have that children's family book that I put out. My sister, after I released it, reminded me that I actually wrote a children's book before then that i forgot about and i'll tell you why when my wife was pregnant we found out we were having a, a, our first child was a daughter i got all, all girls but that that's when yeah. i first found out you know i was having a girl my mind said okay i gotta i gotta make something for her this is before i wrote my long book right i wrote it i wrote a children's book that was based on teaching her how to have pride in her hair and i forgot all about it because i sent it to my to my family i sent it to some publishers you know it got rejected so i kind of forgot about it but it just made me think like it's important for us to be proactive in that sense because parents have to realize we're fighting a rising tide. You know, it's like that visual of being on a beach and you're trying to like mop up like the, the beach where, where the water just keeps flowing in. You know, like they when they leave your house, like they. I mean, it could be a billboard. It could be what they're taught in the school. It could be what their friends are showing them on TikTok or whatever. You know, it, it could be just microaggressions. We have to make sure that we are filling their tank overflow in their tank before they leave the house. Because regardless of your socioeconomic status, I mean, it's just a fact of how this country was created and who it was created for. And we've definitely made strides in that because, I mean, I didn't grow up with the Black Panther. Um, I didn't grow up with a Black Spider-Man. Like, Spider-Man is my dude. I love Peter <laughs> Parker. But Miles Morales, wow. You know, like, that just, I mean, they can see themselves a lot more we have to make sure that we're, we're teaching them that because, you know, well, what, what can happen is your kids can become, you know, they, they might eventually become affluent. They might go to whatever, whatever we you know, feel like is affluent or whatever we feel like is a so-called prestigious school, but they can forget who they are. And they, and they can be judging other people in their community. You know, like, what good is it to, to gain the word and lose your soul? You can have kids who, you know, are doing great financially, but then they, they hate their skin color, you know, or they, or they hate yeah. their hair. And it doesn't matter how light they are in our country. Like, I'm my, my wife, you know, she watches the Housewives shows, you know, and I, I watch Atlanta with her. And over the years, we, get, we just kind of like comment on it's insane to me to see some of the black women on that show over the years how they vested so much in plastic. And I'm talking, these are are beautiful black women, but because they're living within a social construct, they're not just like reality stars in Atlanta. They they feel like they're competing with the New York show. They're competing with all these other celebrities and they have to, you know, maintain a a young look or look very Eurocentric. Like just because they're on TV, just because they have a certain amount of, of income or status doesn't mean that they are, comfortable in their own blackness. And I feel like I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't let my kids know that how you came into this world is perfect. How you are. That's what God wanted. That's what God intended. And it it just so happens too that you directly descend from people who were the first ones here. So how dare you do something to shift that?
0: (laughs) That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. You know, I just saw a post the other day. It's beautiful. Black girl, dark skin came home crying saying she's ugly and, and her hair, you know, and getting teased about her hair. And she wasn't equipped mm-hmm. to manage that. I mean, it is aggression. I, I no longer even say microaggression because mm-hmm. it just continues mm-hmm. to to pain us. So, you know, this aggression in and the, the upholding of white supremacy in youth who see each other as ugly, even when they look the same or similar. I mean, that's so deeply ingrained in our culture to self-hate. We don't just Self hate for no reason, we've been taught that over you know the history of of our lives and and to know she came home and she's destroyed. you know, kids that young are committing suicide like this is this is serious business. we have to get to the business of building pride in. As soon as possible, so that they can withstand what's going to come their way, because it's going to come their way.
2: Oh no, it's, it's very important. I mean, you made me think how like there are shows on television that I've seen that can have an all-black cast, but it appears as if they strategically made sure that every black person they chose was like to, to, you know, fair skin, brown skin, um, had a certain straight texture hair, or, or even fit the traditional Eurocentric model of what it what they deem to be pretty. You know. And so, like sometimes, even that representation, we have to be really clear because we need our kids to see themselves in all shades, like all of it. We, of course, we, again, we couldn't control how we came into this world, so we need to make sure that we expose them to all of that. Because unlike most other ethnic groups in this world, like we describe ourselves as black, whether we we look like, you know, what I'm saying Mariah Carey, <laughs> whether we look like, you know, Lapita. like that's all beautiful. Right. That's all the spectrum. Right there. And our kids need to know that it's it's really unsettling because we feel as though just by playing by the rules of this society, that we'll be okay. And it comes to a point as black folks in this country and in the world where you're you're reminded that you have to do more, you have to do more. There's whiteness everywhere you look and that becomes the mirror. And if we look in the other mirror and don't see that, then we start changing things.
0: And I would add to that and say, it's not just that we see whiteness, we see anti-blackness mm-hmm, everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, because the extreme of that is even this cult, so-called integration. And I've said it over the the time that I've had the podcast, this idea of, you know, DEIJ in our country has bought mixed race couples on TV, but you don't, Wait you rarely, I'm not going to say you don't, but you rarely see two dark skinned people yes. represented in a commercial. Yeah. And so, and what do kids watch? <laughs> Yeah. So it, the message is subliminal. So we really have to, I think, teach towards, you know, the love of blackness and work our way back to everything yes. else, because that is the one that is strongest, strong, most strongly tied to anti-blackness. Yes,
2: indeed. I agree. It, Makes it's, sense? It's, no, yeah, it's the subtle kinds that are that are, you know, the, the worst the, the things they don't say. I think you said that perfectly. Yeah. It's something that my wife and I have noticed and talk about a lot like it's why why isn't the father there or why you know there, there are sometimes they'll just show the black woman in the cartoon I've seen without anybody you know then it's like okay well where's where's the father or why isn't the father in the picture you know why are why isn't there a black couple together and again because we're starting with such a deficit in our representation we really got to make sure it's overdone like it can't be any <laughs> <laughs> can't be like <laughs> lapses in that.
0: Wait, I want to add to that. I want to add to that because I've seen this and I know I've caught it myself in my own internalized depression. We are so accepting of so little,
1: mm.
0: you know, because of the starvation, the deprivation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, we'll take this and say I got into it with somebody who wanted to celebrate, you know, Emmett Till's whatever Biden did. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah. what? Yeah, you know, at the same time, Tulsa Massacre, people can't get their money yeah. and there's only a couple of them left for how much longer? Like, why are we celebrating this right. when that's still going on? And that's how we've been conditioned to believe every little bit is is great or we're celebrating. No, we need to shut some shit down. That's what exactly. I'm talking
2: about. Exactly. Yeah, we, we've we grown accustomed to a lot of us, like just being seen by a white person can make us happy with just the acknowledgement, you know. And a lot of times, you know how people say, we folks will say that white folks' ice is uh, cold or whatever, you know. It's like, oh, he finally admitted or he finally... Like previously, a few months ago, maybe, you know, last year, I believe they closed the case when they had the lady who was responsible, still alive, like when more could have right. been done. And you can't tell me that they could not have done more when we we, we see the efforts that are made, you know, or even still like even when Supreme Court decisions are made, there are states that would defy the odds and say, I ain't paying attention to that. So if you truly want justice as opposed to a symbolic gesture then you really go after this. And I, th- I think that's why reparations is such a uh, iffy topic for politicians, because I was just listening to a brother, Robin Walker, and he was talking about what Britain owes, like not just the islands, but like, you know, ins- black people who were enslaved in America because it was Britain first, then it was the United States. And the number they threw out there was in the trillions. So when you start talking about this, people know that it's uncovering so much that it upends everything. Like there's literally no country without us. There's no wealth without us. So if you're really breaking it down, we're not even just talking about slavery. We're talking about, I got a family that was born, you know, before 1968, you know, Jim Crow reparations. My grandmother's yep. were alive, right? We're talking about the world drugs reparations. So when that accountability happens, then they get real fearful. And that's why there's such an attack on kids learning You know, about AP African-American studies or learning a a version of black history that teaches about liberation. They want you to learn the Americanized version, not the real version.
0: (laughs) You know, I think you answered this, but I'm going to I'm going to ask it anyway. In your words, you propose to creatively strategize how we can use our past to create a better future, entrenched in equitable practices. Explain what this looks like. You've you've led into it already, but would you add anything?
2: Yeah, I I think what that for me, what that looks like is one of the phrases I tell people, especially kids when I speak to them, is I say that I don't want you all to think that you have to make progress. I just need you all to reclaim who you already are intrinsically. I tell kids, reclaim your crown. What I mean by that is everything that we want to accomplish, for the most part, especially in terms of building a just system, All of that stuff has already been done. The things we're striving to do in this country, like we haven't had a a, a woman head of state. You know, we got Kamala Harris now as the VP. We haven't had a woman president. That was done. We have fair roles. You know, former president of Liberia was a woman. I can't think of her name right now. You know, like, like when I say equitable practices, I'm saying look at them, not to say societies we had were perfect, but we strove To a certain level of excellence and and our societies were based on you know virtues and 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 treating people correctly you know the maya to ubuntu like making sure people were treated well everybody was fed right so i say look back to what they did and then let's pick from it what we can add to what we need to do moving forward because when i read books to my children at night you know they they see the examples of of women being leaders in other countries over the course of time and then they'll say, "Why come we've never had it here?" You know, and but, but what I love about that is they see that it's not them that's the problem. Yeah. You know, it's like it's something wrong with this place. Then if it could have happened over here in Africa, Latin American countries, but it's not happening here, right? So when we talk about creating better education systems, like nothing's new. I'm, I'm reading a book right now by Dr. A.C. Hilliard called uh, The Maroon Within Us, I believe is the name of it. And he's talking about the, the comedic schools they had and how they used to teach in ancient a- Egypt and ancient Kemet. And like we just have to find those things and then use what we have now to, you know, I hate to even say modernize it, but to adapt it mm-hmm. to the society that we live in right now. So I start with I start with, I would say the household with that, you know, your household should really look like a school. Not saying chalkboard, I'm saying the images your kids see. I'm, I'm saying the time you devote to talking with them and conversing with them because when we talk about equitable practices, that starts at home, right? Is everybody doing their fair share? You know, are your kids being compensated in some way? I mean, I'm not talking about giving them allowance, that's up to you. But I'm saying like I, I, like is their role and responsibility. Cause if your kids don't have a role in the house, then what they're gonna do when they get it out into the quote unquote real world. And then when they go to school, right, our schools aren't equitable by nature. They weren't created. They're created to produce workers. So our schools should be centered on creating citizens who are who are ready to undo the societal inequity that we have in their immediate community. When I taught kids history for 12 years, I never once was tasked with the responsibility of teaching them about local history. That never made sense to me. Like you live in Chicago, you live in Joliet, Illinois, but you're not learning about all the great black history or like working class history or, you know, that happened here. So like George Washington, that's I mean, all that, whatever. Right. But what that got to do with this, you know? (laughs) So equity to me and I'm going from the framework of, you know, pro black. So it's like equity for me means we got to make sure that we're building things moving forward. That can help us all out to make sure we're all good, bringing back community farms, teaching people how to farm, and, and, you know, and, and create ways for us to survive and, and thrive, quite frankly, is what we have to do with this.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. I love it. You mentioned it. So I'm going to get into that for a little bit. You quit teaching after 12 years. You are now the CEO of Crim's Cultural Consulting, LLC. Talk about the services you offer and who benefits from hiring you.
2: Yeah. So what I do is essentially, you know, in a nutshell, people kind of see it on social media. I use black history. I use the history of marginalized groups in this country, primarily the global majority, to empower, to educate. And like we said before, to help create equitable systems. So understanding that race is a social construct. um, So we are talking about cultural differences primarily that people have. I'm helping educators understand the experiences that their students have. I'm helping them understand the racism that their children might face and how they can better serve them under under the capacity of being a public servant as a teacher. I'm teaching students because that's who I initially started my service with. When I'm going to speak to students, I'm teaching them how to use their history to empower themselves on an individual and communal level, meaning that, again, you might deal with what I dealt with. You might not have. But the the interesting part about my story is I'm going to share with you the racism that I dealt with in high school, too, the systemic stuff. And you're going to learn how to advocate for yourself and be self-determined, because I feel like all of us need to be a little bit of both Martin and Malcolm. Right. We need to have the political awareness of of Martin. We need to have the self-determination of Malcolm. So I'm teaching kids how to do that. When I'm speaking to companies, we're talking from an anti-racist perspective. We're talking about how to be aware of implicit biases. So I want people to understand through this company that the culture that we have are raised under is you is primarily Western, you know. It's it's, it's the center. Wh- whiteness is the center, but that but we all come to this country. With a variety of different backgrounds even if you are european like you know if you're eastern european if you're southern european that's completely different as as a, as a black american who has ancestors all throughout the south and from west africa we bring different things to the table so we have to really celebrate that and then the social media aspect of that of course is just promoting our histories because i want people to again be bombarded with these images of who we truly are and what this country has also truly been to us so that we can understand and learn what we've been conditioned with to move forward to a you know a better and more prosperous future
0: So one question about that you have mentioned you know empowering the students and teaching the adults about what what is in the system yeah. how does that go over in a diverse community that you are offering your services?
2: Yeah, so I, I'll give you some lived experience. Most of my school speaking engagements are in a mixed environment. When I speak to schools that are primarily Black or Latino, I'm typically speaking to the kids. I would say, or speaking to younger kids. When I speak to adults, it's primarily adults from like a, a mixed background. The issues that they have is the overt anti-blackness. I don't think a lot of our primarily black schools understand that they can still be anti-blackers. I went to a all black high school. We weren't really we, we weren't taught things from our perspective still. It was just the population was black. The institution wasn't, you know. So I deal with educators who are trying to figure out how do I address the rising incidences of hate crimes in schools or hateful language. It's a lot going on, especially in mixed environments where you have black students who are friends with Hispanic and white students or even, you know, Arab students who think they have agency to use the N word. You have our kids reacting to it. And, and, and so we have we already like less than two percent as black men, as, as black folks, period. We might be like five or six percent of all teachers. So they, and even if you are again, if you're black, that doesn't mean you are equipped to deal with that. And that's 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 OK, because that might not be your expertise. So we have educators who are trained in their step, their method, their pedagogy, their discipline. And they're just like, I don't know what to do. Like, so I come in and I, I help communicate to them why this happens, what should be done. And then on the flip side, I also speak to mixed environments of, of, of students to help them understand. I've done a, did a presentation recently about how to be an ally of students who experience this. I've spoken in environments as young as, I'll tell you, fifth grade, fifth grade, where they were dealing with these types of issues, where black students are being called the N-word where Arab students are being called terrorists. And, you know, it's it's I I try to come in and help build community and also help people understand these like racial blind spots that may prevent them from understanding this. Because if you are a white teacher and you're dealing with these issues, you have to first understand that you're at a probably an elementary level of racial knowledge. And that's okay. Like, just be aware of that. Acknowledge it. You might have a master's, a doctorate, but you might be in first grade when we talk about how to understand this stuff. (laughs)
0: so it is perfect I love what you're offering I love how you explain it I just want to I want to offer one thing Mm -hmm. and that is we stop giving um, white bodies the privilege of being an ally without the history Mm -hmm. I'm I'm hoping Mm -hmm. that We can work to change that language so it sounds more. I don't like the term uh, personally. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I I stopped using it because ally means you can just hang out and watch, right? Right. And and you're not doing it, so you're okay. And I, I like I like a term something that feels more active. I mean, I know there's other terms out there. I don't expect everybody to subscribe to abolitionists. I wish they would. Mm -hmm. But I think ally does a disservice to what you're talking about and what you're talking about is so powerful and so important. And I appreciate it so much.
2: Thank you for that. No, I've been really trying to brainstorm and think about a different term. I just haven't found it yet. Even with saying ally, I like to even say in the meantime, like white folks who are attempting to be.
0: (laughs) I appreciate the I I appreciate the link. You know, I I do consultation for people who desire not to be you know, racist in their practice. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I use the whole sentence. Yeah, if you correct. desire to be anti-black racist in your practice, I'm the consultant for you yeah. because it's worth the language. Because they've really wrapped around this ally thing, and it's just yeah, it's it's been so many years. Nobody wants to give it up. Right? And, yeah.
2: and thing is, yeah, once you, oh, okay, once you claim it, then you stop working. You know, like you, <laughs> you, you like I'm an ally. Okay, what does that mean? Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, it, and, and honestly, like as a white person. I mean, just having had the experiences I've had in black spaces and white spaces, it's a tough, it's a tough ask. It's a tough ask. Like, because you can be, you can read all the books you want. You can, you know, be in black spaces online and follow certain people. But then, like, are you doing something at your job? Because even though you're doing all this work, you still you're still living within a system that just by its creation is benefiting you. So you have to you have to live it. You have to con- and even when you're living it, you're still going to fall short. You gotta be okay right. with that, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know, there's no more forgiving and accepting community than the black community. I'm sorry, yeah. Did, you know that that's how people started thinking they could say the n word exactly. because we're always trying to pull people in, bring them to the cookout, yeah. and do all this yeah, stuff yeah. before they've really even shown. First yeah. of all, nobody should be using the word other than us if we choose to. Exactly Let me just put that out there. Exactly. But also this yeah. idea that, oh, now you can come to the cookout. Yeah. No. Why? No, like, why? no you're you not at all. something
2: You are you are <laughs> not you are not invited. If if you come <laughs> Like maybe you got you got a black spouse or something, like you just kind of I'm not I'm not like extending oh man you you could definitely I, I just want I hate that I hate that, <laughs> I, hate that. Right. I, hate I hate that I hate
0: that
2: just don't like just don't say it online at least like let's have oh a,
0: my god
2: personal you know if you got like a real close friend or something you want to just oh, you want to come through like I hate when we do that online like just, I they give people the feeling that they have the agency to just, you know, I'm black because I, I, I know how to dance or I like yeah. rap music. No, bro. No, sis.
0: <laughs> Way <more than> that. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. I'm going to ask you one more question okay. and then I'm actually going to break and hopefully you have time so that we can get to the other questions I've had because yep. we've gotten so deep here. I haven't yep. gotten to them. Is that okay? Yeah, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Okay. So the last question on this segment is you posted a quote, and it was virtually all IQ tests dependent upon language or I'm sorry, virtually all IQ tests depend upon language. Yet there is no indication that any IQ test has been developed that takes into account the variations in vocabulary, the syntax, the paralanguage, or other aspects of language for which cultural alternatives or style exist. This has always bothered me, Mm. you know, with standardized testing. Mm -hmm. Will you just say a little bit about that before we end the segment?
2: Yeah. Again, that's from Asa Hilliard. I'm reading that book heavy right now. And I want to say like the last probably probably last six years in the classroom, I was on like a personal mission to just really do everything I could in my class to not focus on standardized testing. When I first started, I knew that part of my evaluation was based on how much I increased kids ACT or SAT scores. And once I got over that like personal mission, I I really understood that like that's only one type of intelligence. And by standardizing our kids, we're essentially saying that they're products. When I teach about like the industrial revolution and the Gilded Age, we're talking about sweatshops and factories and assembly lines like Ford specialized in. We're essentially saying that our kids are going down the line to different teachers and having, you know, certain screws turned so they can become this ideal citizen. Right. But our kids, we don't we don't come from households in a culture that even communicates in a language that produces these tests. And these tests were initially created to try to socially stratify us and try to prove in, in some way that we weren't as intelligent as white people. That's the history of standardized testing. So like if 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 I talk in a way like. We don't even have to have any knowledge about our past here or Africa, but we still live it. And we don't like hip hop is that like we made our own language. When I I say when I close a statement by saying you feel me or you know what I'm saying, you won't find that on a standardized test. Because if it was on a standardized test and a person said you feel me through the European lens, that's going to be literally meaning that you touch that person. We don't talk like that. And we talk in a tonal language. So like our, in West Africa, our stories were kept like communally, orally. We told stories, the Jollies, the Griots. So like the written text doesn't even mean as much to us, but we can verbalize some things to you that would go over your head. We have the gift of gab. That's why we, it, before we started rapping on records, we were rapping in the community because we would talk fast and talk slick and put like James Brown. You know what I'm saying? Like they, These folks have been rapping for years, a lot of jazz artists. So then when you tell me to sit down and I have to like try to figure out what you're saying based on your cultural language and pick the correct answer, there's there's a gap. So for any black child that has ever, and I was always an average test taker. So I always got like, you know, I'll just write in the middle. I did great in the, with the grades, but test, I'm in the middle. But for every black child that has ever gotten 36 on the ACT or I don't know, on the SAT, I think it might be. 1600, I don't know. But like, kudos to you because you've had to learn. You're bilingual. We're all like, if you don't know Spanish, that's cool. You're bilingual here. If you navigate in those spaces and you, and you and you change the way you pronounce certain words, you're bilingual because they couldn't exist in our neighborhoods and know how to talk or communicate. So that's exactly where that comes from. And also, too, like there was a white professor that even taught Howard Garner that we have multiple intelligences, but school is only Molding the type that says you have to sit down and be quiet for fifty minutes at a time and fill in the bubble. My kids started taking standardized tests. My own kids, when they was like, in, I want to say maybe second grade, like my and my kids started disliking school around third grade because that's when they get bombarded with it. Right, their favorite part of the day now is recess. It shouldn't be that way. Recess is fun, but like your class should be just as fun because you should be engaging in things that I actually teach you. We learned like I, I, I could go on and on. But like one of the things I really dislike about our public education system is it is the antithesis of science based It defies logic. Studies show they teach us this as educators that you learn more through teaching. You learn more by action. So because of that, the most educated person in the classroom will always be the teacher because I'm teaching so there have been things, topics i taught in U.S. history that I just learned the day before. Right. But I learned it more because I had to explain it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: R- repetition is what teaches.
2: Right. Our kids don't learn how to walk by reading a book. They don't mm-hmm. learn how to run by <laughs> reading a book They <laughs> learnt because their body developed that way, but also because they kept trying and they saw other people doing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Look, you know, the idea that it's just a public school problem, I just want to put that to rest because all schools. I've worked in Mm. private spaces and public spaces. They all subscribe to that concept that you bring to the table. And it's an important one to to challenge. So I appreciate it. Look, I want to end there because we got much more to talk about. And thanks for sharing the space with me. What can I say? You're an incredible human being. I'm a big fan. And I, I learn from you all the time. And there are not many people I feel so comfortable with learning from. That was a messed up sentence, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. I I feel you. I I literally feel you. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.